being together. Uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together worshiping you. Uh, we would just acknowledge together what a wonderful name the name of Jesus is. And we want to study some of Jesus' teachings this morning. So, Father, would your spirit give us understanding and give us wisdom? Uh, make us different because of our time together, for we ask it in his name. Amen. You know, we have a lot of uh, couples here in the church right now that are expecting a baby real soon. Um, I'm, I'm going to miss some, but I know Tim and Laura Rehnquist are expecting a baby. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law were here in the first service. Ian and Lorraine are expecting a baby. Uh, Dustin and Emily were here in the first service. They're expecting a baby. Uh, Josh and Miriam are expecting a baby. Uh, let's see, Aaron and Jackie Ellis expecting a baby. Uh, lots of babies being expected. And these folks are looking forward to getting up in the middle of the night and meeting the incessant needs of this little one that's gonna come into their, into their family, losing lots of sleep. It's a, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing adding to your family. There's really no more pivotal moment in the life of a couple when that's happening. But the truth is, it's a lot of work. It's very, very, very demanding. Because I don't know if you know it or not, but little ones only think of themselves. Have you noticed that? Uh, they only care about their own needs. They don't care one whit about your needs. Uh, they have no respect for boundaries whatsoever. Boundary, what's that, you know, to a little one? They can be happy one minute. They can be crying the next. You can't, for the life of you, figure out why. You know, what changed? I'm not sure. I don't think anything changed. They don't acknowledge really hardly ever how hard you're working in serving them and meeting their needs. They take all this attention that you give them, and then they want more, more, more. It really, the life of an infant is just take, 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 and then take some more. Uh, isn't it great that we adults have grown out of that kind of behavior? Isn't that great? Isn't it great that we're not selfish? We're not self-indulgent. We're not needy. Isn't it great that we, uh, we're no longer demanding? We're no longer difficult? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. We've been in a series, a short one, talking about relationships uh, last week, we talked about the different kinds of people that we've been called to love. Some are wise, some are foolish, some are evil. Three kinds of people that the Bible mentions. And we noted last week, too, that actually there's some of each of those in all of us, you know, which makes it kind of complicated, this thing of loving people. Uh, but loving, we've been saying, is a dirty, difficult, costly business. It is not easy to love somebody. It always requires sacrifice on our part. It's not easy to uh, uh, even figure out sometimes what loving someone looks like. That's why you, there are different strategies. You, you love a fool differently than you love a wise person. You can listen to last week's message. I thought we would conclude this, uh, this short series by looking at people in our lives who we just, you know, we admit, these are not easy people to love. Is there somebody in your life who fits that description? Not an easy person to love, just difficult, difficult to love. People who are always, I don't know, maybe they're negative. Uh, maybe they're super critical. Maybe they're egocentric. Maybe they're self-absorbed. They think that the world kind of revolves around them. Is any, any names coming to mind to you? They don't listen well. They don't empathize well. They're not very compassionate, at least as it relates to you. They're very opinionated. They want to always be telling you what their opinions are, their ideas, their values, their beliefs, maybe even their politics. Maybe there's someone in your life, you might even say, who's hurtful. I mean, you love them, but wow, they're hurtful. Uh, they say harsh things. 
They've taken advantage of you in the past. And so there's stuff, there's stuff that makes that, that relationship difficult to have it function. Um, I'm just curious to kind of do a mass confession. If there has ever been someone in your life that was really difficult for you to love, would you raise your hand? Yeah, look around there. Yeah. If you didn't raise your hand, you probably are the difficult person. Just a, <laughs> just a heads up on that, okay? So, yeah. Um, now, here's the thing. Following Jesus would be so much easier if it weren't for other people. Would you agree? I mean, if I didn't have to deal with other people, I wouldn't have to live generously. I wouldn't have to live sacrificially. I wouldn't have to live forgivingly. I wouldn't have to proceed with caution and be humble. Wouldn't have to. If all I had to think about was me, I think life would be pretty easy. But you know what's interesting too? Our world would have me believe that life is just about me or have you believe that it's just about you. Uh, you know, don't deal with people who are difficult. Uh, dismiss them, ignore them. You know, please yourself, be true to yourself, pursue your own dreams, chart your own course. Don't let anyone obstruct your happiness, your joy, your dreams, your purpose. Don't be bothered by other people and what they think or don't think. Don't let them take advantage of you. You don't have to love them. You don't even have to like them. I mean, people will say, you know, uh, they'll also throw in there this little caveat. They'll say, well, but you should be nice to people. You should be polite to people. You should smile at them, even if you don't like them. But when they're not in the room, you know, who cares? What difference does it make? Uh, you don't have to serve them. You don't have to protect their reputation. In fact, you can uh, besmirch their reputation if you want to. You don't like them. Who are they? If they don't serve your purposes, they don't further your dreams, then hey, ignore them. Who cares? But then there's Jesus, and he messes this up really bad. Uh, he had quite a different relational rule of thumb when it came to dealing with people, even dealing with difficult people. He said this one time to some of his disciples, to a large gathering, and he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we go, okay. Yeah, I have heard that said in one way, shape, or another. Uh, yeah, I will love the people who love me and... Um, and I will uh, love the people who don't get under my skin, you know. Uh, I will love my neighbor and I will hate my enemy. But he goes on to say, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. Uh-oh. Wow, okay. So there's something on the line here. Uh, he causes, the father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God really isn't up there discriminating about who the sun shines for or the rain falls on, be they good or be they evil, be they, you know, a loved one or be they an enemy. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Wow, really? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He asked tax collectors, you understand, were people who were collaborating with the Romans. They were in the bad category. You know, we don't like tax collectors. At least they didn't then. Well, we still don't now, do we? Sorry if you're a tax collector. But anyway, and if, you, and if you greet only your brothers, he says, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Everybody greets their brothers. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Wow. You know, you notice Jesus is not really impressed with our efforts to love the people who are easy to love, at least not here. 
Uh, these are the people, you know, who, who love you and respect you and look like you and think like you and have the values that you have. Jesus seems not to be so concerned with that. It's almost, I guess he assumes that we will love those people. But he is quite concerned about our loving people who are difficult to love. He's got a name for them. He calls them enemies. <laughs> he says we're supposed to love our enemies. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus is not pointing to some very abstract uh, sense of morality or obedience to God. He's actually thinking about sacrificially loving people who persecute you, speak evil of you, hate you, whip you, and nail you to a cross. He's got something specific in mind. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to actually love your enemies. And you swallow hard and you kind of go, wow, well, what does that even mean? How do I do that? And Jesus on numerous occasions tried to set an example, tried to engage his disciples on this subject of what it means. What does it look like to love your enemies? And I want to look at a text with you that I think will actually help us in, in this matter of, of loving the people in our lives that are difficult. I ask you to turn with me, if you've got a Bible, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to dive into a story and sort of dissect it. We'll flash it up on the screen too, if you don't have a Bible with you. But uh, in Matthew chapter 15, we read these words. Jesus and his disciples is talking about, it says, leaving that place, they had been in Galilee. Galilee was like home territory to them. Um, it, it was familiar country, familiar people, familiar customs, full of friends, full of family, people you would like, uh, people that would like them. And it says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Oh, okay. If you were reading this back then, that would catch your attention. Um, because for a first century Jew, the region, the region of Tyre and Sidon is pagan country. This is where the pagans are. People live there who reject our ideas and they reject our values. It was a place of idolatry, pagan religion. Uh, it was just uh, north and west of Galilee in what today is Lebanon. And uh, this is the last place you would expect a, a Jewish rabbi to be taking his disciples. Why are you going there? What is that about? You're going to find nothing but difficult people there. And then it says a Canaanite woman. That's important too. Uh, this adjective, this uh, description of, of, a, of a woman as a Canaanite woman. Canaanite is a word that's used only one time in the New Testament, and it's right here. A Canaanite woman. And that was a word that when a Jew used it, it was filled with disrespect. It was filled with smugness. It was filled with disgust. It's a word that, it's, it's like a Democrat talking about a conservative, right? Or a conservative talking about liberal, you know, just filled with a sense of judgment and disrespect. She's a Canaanite woman, not just a Gentile, a Canaanite woman. And it says a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And notice what's next. Jesus did not answer a word. Okay, that's interesting. Let's log that and come back to it. So his disciples came to him and they urged him, send her away for she, she keeps crying out after us. Jesus, this woman is annoying. Uh, we don't need this hassle. Who does she think she is? She's just a Canaanite woman. Send her away, Jesus. And he answered, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he, that's what he says. And that's another curious response, actually. And so we'll flag that one to him. We'll come back to it. It says, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. It's getting worse. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. My response when I read this text is, wow, what kind of story is this? Um, It's kind of perplexing what exactly is going on here. It's almost like the paparazzi caught up with Jesus and disciples on a bad day, you know, and got some stuff on film, kind of some embarrassing moments. A needy woman approaches Jesus. He ignores her. And then he seems to insult her. At uh, first blush, this seems like, you know, not the way necessarily to treat anyone, let alone a difficult person. Kind of a side note here. A lot of people in our day think that the New Testament is an assemblage of fairy tales designed to make us look at Jesus and think very highly of him and think, oh, what a great guy. Oh, he is God. Well, let me, t- let me point something out. This story doesn't fit that pattern. Do you notice that? Nobody in their right mind would put a story like this in the Bible if, if, uh, unless it was true, right? Unless it was true, because it doesn't serve the purpose, at least on the surface, of, uh, of warming us up to Jesus and the disciples because they're not looking too good in this story. Uh, now, here's the thing though, and I've said this many, many times in the past. If you read something in the Bible that seems to you culturally repulsive, what should you do? Dig a little deeper. That's right. I'm glad you're all with me on this. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Dig a little deeper. Okay. Dig a little deeper. You got to understand that culture. It's not our culture. It's a different culture. And so you want to look a little more closely. And if you unpack this story in its cultural setting, there's actually a series of things that we learn here that'll be very helpful to us as we try to love difficult people in our lives. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. Uh, In fact, I want to make five observations from this text. Uh, And the first observation is this. When it comes to loving difficult people in our lives, Sometimes we just need to silence our need to be nice. Let me try and explain. You know, so many people in churches, so many Christ followers feel very strongly that the number one calling of being a follower of Jesus is to just be a nice person to everybody, right? That's what being a disciple is. Just be nice. Just get along. Well, (laughs) when they... (laughs) Hold on to that thought. Uh, when, When the Canaanite woman first approaches Jesus we noticed uh, Jesus doesn't respond. Did you notice that? Kind of strikes us as rude in our culture. What's going on here? But understand, that silence was actually culturally very appropriate in that day. Jesus' silence kind of rebukes our wanting to fill the gap with just trying to be nice. Right? Jesus, you can't do that. You can't act like that. You need to at least smile and be polite, right? Well, not necessarily. Um, that thing of smiling and always being polite kind of reminds me of the politician. That's the way a politician lives. They, they might find you disgusting. They might not like your question, but if the camera is rolling, they're going to smile and they're going to be polite and they're going to walk away and they're going to dismiss you in their mind. They'll say to their, their aides, don't ever let that person ask a question again, right? That kind of a thing. But I digress. That's just uh, 
That's not necessarily in the text. Anyhow, uh, it says Christians, here's the problem. As Christians, we can often think of ourselves almost like people who are called to be professionally nice, always nice. Even when we have no intention of being helpful, we'll still be nice. Or even when we're just ignoring someone because we find them rude or we don't like them or we reject their thoughts or their beliefs. Uh, and so we're going to ignore them, but we'll be nice in the moment. But here's the deal. Nowhere in the gospels are we told to just be nice people. The truth is sometimes, and I stress sometimes, trying to be nice gets in the way of actually loving someone. Because being nice prevents, prevents us from speaking the truth to one another. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we hammer people with the truth that we think we have. But sometimes we will decide in the name of being nice to not even bring the truth up. <laughs> uh, we don't wanna hurt someone's feelings. Dwayne, you need to plan further ahead. Dwayne, you need to manage people better. Dwayne, you need to do this thing that you don't really want to do and you need to do it right now. All things that people on the staff here have said to me, or I, I should say people who used to be on staff. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, those were all things I didn't want to hear at the time, but they were all truthful things and they were things that helped me grow and helped me be better than I was being. Here's the deal. You can't love someone if you're just trying to be nice and polite to them all the time. If you're constantly smoothing over conflict, if you're constantly avoiding difficult or hard conversations, you're not necessarily loving that person. Does that make sense? Loving them might just be telling them the truth, and I would add, with humility, with sensitivity, not beating them up with it. But loving someone can involve us being something other than just nice. That's observation number one. Let go of your need to be nice if it's getting in the way of really loving someone. Observation number two, avoid avoidance. Let me explain. So often when it comes to difficult people, the thing that we want to do most is just avoid them. You know, turn the other way, ignore them, don't see them. Uh, think back to the story. Jesus here remains silent, but his disciples don't. They come to him. They don't talk to the woman. They actually, they're avoiding her. They actually talk to Jesus. Uh, they say to Jesus, Jesus, send her away. They're saying she's annoying. And again, they don't engage her. They don't want to address the issues that are gonna come to the surface if they do address her. So they say, Jesus, just send her away. And we do this all the time in our lives, if we're honest. We avoid hard conversations. We avoid difficult people. We want to steer clear of something that feels like it's, it's going to make us uncomfortable to have this conversation. In this story, when the woman comes near to Jesus, we're told that she's crying out to him. That means she's not right up close standing next to him. She's actually crying out to him. She's at some distance and she's yelling to him and she keeps on doing this for some period of time. And understand in that culture, again, from a Jewish perspective, it would be culturally inappropriate to do what she is doing. For a Jewish man also, let alone a Jewish rabbi, it would also be culturally inappropriate to speak to a strange woman, let alone a strange Canaanite woman in public. 
Nobody watching this situation unfold was the least bit surprised that Jesus, according to Matthew 15, 23, Jesus did not answer a word. That was not a surprising response in that culture. Um, that's why the disciples come to Jesus and they urge him, just send her away, Jesus. We're getting tired of this. She keeps crying out. They don't expect Jesus to say anything to this woman. What's shocking is, in fact, he does. He does address her. He doesn't avoid her. He doesn't do the safe and probably more comfortable thing or even the culturally appropriate thing. Instead, he gauges, engages her knowing this is going to get messy. This could be difficult. But Jesus steps right in and he speaks up and he takes this risk and he understands that avoidance, though it feels good in the moment, though it feels safe at a particular moment in time, it's a terrible, terrible way to deal with difficult people. Why? Well, because frustrations just build when you avoid. Hard feelings just get stronger, go deeper if you avoid. Misunderstandings fester and they spread if you avoid. Regardless of what the next step may be in your life. And I would submit to you, if you've got difficult people that you're, you're dealing with, there are next steps you need to take in dealing with them. There always are. So regardless of what the next step may be in your life, you need to figure that out. To love that difficult person, you're going to have to engage them in some appropriate way. Maybe that means having the hard conversation or taking some initiative to share how you feel or how you've been hurt. Or maybe it's you apologizing and asking them if they want to apologize. Maybe it's offering forgiveness yet another time. Maybe if the situation feels overwhelmingly complicated, you take the risk of talking to a mentor or someone you trust whose opinion you value. Or maybe you talk to a counselor. Maybe you even you talk to a pastor. Uh, I would recommend uh, Tim and Joseph and Brett. That's good. You're, what you're doing is you're seeking advice on what the next step might be. How, how should I approach this? Um, but we have to fight the temptation to just avoid. That's the second observation. You still with me? Here's the third. Respect your boundaries. Uh, you have to know and respect your own boundaries. What do I mean? Well, Jesus does this very thing in this story. Early on in the story, when Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, send her away. Uh, Jesus instead speaks to her and he says this, this very curious thing. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he says to her. What's he driving at? Well, a little context again uh, would, would help us. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had made it very, very clear that he had come to the people of Israel. And of course, he had come proclaiming himself through what he did, through what he said, through how he taught, uh, through healings and things of that. He came proclaiming himself as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. And uh, that was his mission. He had not come to proclaim himself the savior of the world to the Gentile nations. That was something that would come, however, in fact, eventually we know he was going to send out his, his followers, his disciples to make that proclamation to, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue of people. But that wasn't Jesus' mission when he first came. And Jesus is simply letting this woman know that's still my mission. I haven't changed my mission just because I've come to Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is in essence saying to this woman, you know, ma'am, your problem is not at present my problem. 
That, that's kind of what he's saying. Not here, not now is what he's saying. You see, he hadn't come to reach the Gentile world. That would come later, but first he had to gather the lost sheep of Israel. Again, point is, Jesus understood his mission. Therefore, he had boundaries that were in keeping with that mission. And he was always crystal clear on this. What he was responsible for and what he wasn't responsible for. Why he had come and what he wanted to accomplish. This is why Jesus was never anxious or nervous about not healing everybody. You ever read those, the various stories in scripture where Jesus is, is healing groups of people. Uh, and, and oftentimes there were many, many people there who needed healing, but Jesus didn't heal them all. That didn't make Jesus nervous or, or anxious. In fact, if you want to read just such a story, go to John chapter 5 and you read, read that this afternoon. Jesus goes into this place, the pool of Bethsaida, and he singles out one man. Now, normally there were always many people at the pool of Bethsaida waiting for movements of the waters, waiting to get down into them, looking for healing. Jesus comes into this situation, singles out one man, approaches him, asks him if he wants to be healed, and then he heals him. Why just this man? Again, there were many sick there. Short answer is this, Jesus had a mission. With that mission came boundaries. In this case, he was making his identity known to Jewish officials who were there in Jerusalem and the healing of this one man would further that purpose, that mission. You see, he wasn't there to heal everyone. That's the idea of boundaries. Know what you're there for. Know what you can do and what you can't do. Understand, to have healthy relationships, you have to have clear boundaries. That's always true. I have to be able to distinguish what I'm responsible for and what this other person is responsible for. This is even more difficult when it comes to dealing with difficult people, simply because difficult people often struggle to take responsibility for their own choices. Have you noticed that? And sometimes they even like to make you feel guilty for their circumstances. Have you noticed that? Um, many years ago, this is about two years into the church plans. This is like 28 years ago, long time ago. We were meeting, uh, we were meeting over in Ken Carroll Middle School and an elderly woman came to church and uh, her name was Gloria. Come to find out she was living out of her car. And uh, she needed a place to stay. And so I talked to Holly and Holly and I said, well, you know, we, we could offer her a room for a week. We had actually people coming to, uh, to visit us in a week. We were going to need that room, but we had nobody living in there at, the, at that moment. And so I explained this to Gloria very clearly. I said, you know, we can give you a room for a week and we can feed you and, and we can kind of help you figure out what your next step is and that type of thing. And she was very thankful. She was very grateful. So that Sunday she came to our house and she kind of moved in and we put her in a bedroom there and she moved a lot of her stuff into that bedroom and immediately it became apparent that we were dealing with a difficult person in lots of different ways. This became apparent. We had, uh, we had four rather small children at the time and uh, this lady... Um, we found out as Holly would cook and it was time to eat. We would invite her to sit down to dinner with her and she'd say, I can't eat this. What I need is this, 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 and this. And she's very specific. You know, she wanted Holly to cook specific meals for her and not cook certain things and cook other things. And uh, something else that was kind of unusual to us is how often she liked to take a shower. Two, three times a day, this gal would take a, take a shower. And I don't mean like a quick rinse off. 
I mean, like get in the shower and it would take an hour, hour and a half. She'd just drain the whole hot water tank. And I explained to her, you know, we got kids, they go to school, they need to take a shower the night before, they need to, you know, get in the bathroom and clean up in the morning. But she would get in there uh, repeatedly and lock the door and turn on the, you know, the hot water and it would be like a steam room in there and we, we couldn't get in. And, and come to find out she would get furious at me if I was... Gloria, you know, Gloria, kids need to get in. They need to get ready for school. And she would become furious at me. Long story short, as the week went on, Gloria became more and more demanding, more and more difficult, uh, less and less grateful. Um, so I, I, all week long, I was making the point, you know, Saturday, Saturday, you'll have to kind of leave and, you know, uh, because we're going to need this room and you, are you making other arrangements? And so, and so Saturday comes around and it's Saturday, early evening. And, uh, I'm telling her, you know, you got to go and this, that, and the other, but it, Saturday rolled around and she didn't seem like she was in any hurry to go anywhere or even had a plan to go anywhere. And uh, so, you know, I have a difficult conversation to say, you know, Gloria, we got to, got to move you out. And I've been telling you all week long, you know, here, here's the deadline. And at that point, Gloria started raging. And I mean, raging, no exaggeration, screaming, stomping around the house, uh, calling down curses on me, on our house, on the kids, uh, on this church and so on. And uh, I had to kind of help grab her stuff. You could call it that. And, uh, and you know, kind of move, kind of coax her towards the front door to get her to leave. And finally, when she was out the front door, she didn't leave. She stood on our front lawn, just hurling curses and calling me the son of Satan and, you know, all these kinds of things. And I'm thinking, wow, the neighbors are thinking, yeah, that's that couple that's starting a church, I think. Um, <laughs> let's avoid that, you know? Um, there is a point to this story. Here's the point. You see, I had to take responsibility for my feelings, for my choices, what I could do, what I couldn't do. And I had been clear all week long with, with Gloria what our mission was. You know, you, we've got a room. You can have it for a week. You know, what? that was a boundary for us. Um, but beyond that, understand, she now needed to take responsibility for her choices. And the truth is she hadn't done anything all week long to prepare uh, for leaving. And, and again, you see, when I feel responsible for someone else's behavior, someone else's choices, well, then I feel guilty. I feel obligated. I even feel trapped. What, what am I going to do? Especially if I'm dealing with a difficult person who wants me to feel that way, you see. They want me to feel guilty. They want me to feel obligated. But when we have boundaries based on, you know, realistic mission, realistic boundaries, when we have boundaries, when I know clearly what's my obligation and what's your obligation, that actually frees me up. Now I can help. I can do for you what I can actually do for you, but only that much. There's a boundary there. You're still responsible for your choices. Is that making sense? You see, without boundaries, I'm overwhelmed. Without boundaries, I feel, you know, it's impossible to offer you help because the need is way bigger than anything that, that I can provide to help meet that need. Understand, that's some of what Jesus is doing. Jesus said this thing that sounded kind of harsh when we read it. He, he says to her, you know, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's Jesus' way of saying, you know, ma'am, your problem is not my problem. I'm not obligated to fix this for you. 
That's not my mission at present. And he wasn't worried about her feeling disappointed at the end of the day. It wasn't about making her feel better. But understand too, that actually gave Jesus the freedom to engage in the situation, listen, and make a choice. Am I going to help her or not? I can do this or not do this. And you see, when you're clear about what your responsibility is and what it isn't, there's a freedom to love that difficult, demanding, needy person in your life. But you need healthy boundaries. You need to know your mission. And guess what? It's okay if the person you're helping doesn't agree with you. It's okay if you disappoint them. Do you think Jesus disappointed anybody? Jesus was always disappointing people. Jesus, you didn't join our club, said the Pharisees. Jesus, you didn't join our club, said the Sadducees. Jesus, you didn't join our club, said the Herodians, said the Essenes, you name it. Jesus, you didn't overthrow the Romans, said the Zealots. Jesus, you didn't stay long enough here in Samaria and Sychar. You're only here two days. We want you to stay longer. Why are you leaving? Jesus, you didn't heal everybody. Jesus knew his boundaries. Jesus knew his mission. He wasn't going to be distracted or manipulated. That gave him actually freedom to love. He could do what he was there to do. He could say no. He could say not now. Now, makes me wonder. How would that difficult relationship in your life change if you had a different understanding of your responsibilities, of your boundaries? Would it free you up to love that person better? I I would suggest to you it would, but you have to get clear. You have to get straight what your boundaries are, what your responsibilities are. You have to come to some clarity around what would Jesus have you do or what wouldn't he have you do? Now, this brings us to the fourth observation, uh, and that is this. We need to confront our prejudices because these are real. You know, our biases, our judgmentalism, our self-righteousness. You know, it's interesting. After the disciples try to send the woman away, the woman comes over to Jesus, and she kneels before him, we're told, and she speaks these words, Lord, help me. And then Jesus says this surprising thing to her in verse 26. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Woo. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Why would Jesus say that? Is he calling this woman a dog? You know, understand in that day, dogs were pretty much despised. Uh, They were seen as unclean, filthy creatures. They roamed the streets. They scavenged for food. The only exception to this was if you were a very wealthy person and you had food to spare. You could feed your family. You could feed the relatives. And oh yeah, with the scraps, you could feed the dogs. You know, I mean, wealthy people did sometimes maintain dogs as pets and things of that nature, but not your average person. Dogs were mostly just unworthy, unhelpful, unwanted animals. And what's worse is a first century Jew would normally think that way about a Canaanite woman. Same thing, a filthy, unclean animal. That was the first century Jews' bias. That was their prejudice. That's how they thought, which kind of makes us wonder, doesn't it? Jesus, why are you talking this way? Why are you saying this? I mean, Jesus had never treated a woman like this before. In fact, read the gospels. He never treats a woman like this after. What's going on here? Well, here's what I think is happening. I'll give you my best shot at this. Uh, Actually, I think Jesus is putting into words what his disciples are thinking. 
That's what I think is going on. Uh, some scholars even postulate, and of course they can't know this, it's conjecture, but they, they postulate that Jesus may not have even been looking at the woman when he said this. He was actually looking at his disciples as he said it. Uh, again, uh, conjecture, but it makes sense. I, I think what's going on here is Jesus is testing his disciples. Here's why. Uh, he, he's putting their thoughts into words. He's getting it out there so they have to process this. Remember, what did Jesus say he had come to do? He was here for the lost sheep of Israel. That, that was why he was there. He had brought these disciples, these Jews, into this area, into this part of the, the countryside, Tyre and Sidon, for a reason. Was it to test the faith of the Gentiles or the Canaanites or this woman? See, I don't think so. These folks were outside his boundaries, outside his mission at the moment, right? He was actually there to test the faith and the assumption and the biases of his disciples who he had brought with him, which is why I'm guessing he puts their thoughts into word. It's a test. He's challenging them. Remember the disciples, Jews in general for that matter, they feel superior to the Gentiles, morally superior, spiritually superior, even more so to the Canaanites and especially this woman. The disciples are thinking, you know, she's not worthy of our time. Why are we bothering with this woman? Let, uh, let alone, you know, ministering to her, showing, uh, being loving toward her. I mean, just Jesus, just send her away. They would have been thinking exactly what Jesus expressed. So I think Jesus just says it out loud. He gets it out there in the air. And so now it's out there and they have to own it. They have to wrestle with it. <laughs> In the text, it's interesting to me, they don't say a word. And we don't know what their response is to hearing this. I mean, are they shocked? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Here's a question. What if Jesus said what you were actually thinking about that difficult person in your life? What if he just voiced it? Got it right out loud there where you kind of can't deny it. Wow. He said exactly what I'm thinking. It sounds pretty harsh when he said it. Would you be shocked by hearing it spoken, hearing it out loud? I think Jesus is saying, before you reach out and label this woman, why don't you take a look at your own heart and what's going on in there? What you think about this woman. You know, when I think about my heart or when I look at my life and I, if I do it honestly, often the things that I don't like in other people are the same things I see in myself. You ever notice that about you? I've noticed that about you. <laughs> I mean, when, uh, you know, I look at myself and I, I'll, I'll think, boy, people talk too much. They don't listen very well. They have an opinion about everything. They're dismissive of others. They're self-absorbed. It's all about them. And then I go, oh, that's sort of all true about me too. Here's the thing, you see, if you want to love the difficult person in your life, you have to consider the possibility that you are a difficult person too. The irony is all the people around you already know this. They already know this, whether you do or not. And truth be told, just for God to love me, just for God to, to love me because of my thoughts and my actions and my beliefs and my choices and my self-centeredness, just for God to love me and to adopt me into his family, somebody had to die. 
That's how difficult I am to love. That's how God thinks about his enemies. That's how God thinks about me. He loves me. 2,000 years ago on a cross, Jesus died not for people who were easy to love, but for people who were difficult to love. Chew on that as you try to love difficult people. Now, this leads to the fifth observation, and it's simply this. (laughs) If you want to do this, what we're talking about today, if you want to not just be a nice person, if you want to avoid avoiding difficult people, if you want to understand your boundaries, if you want to know and own your own biases, your own prejudices, you are going to have to ask God for help, period. You cannot love a difficult person in your life just by trying to summon the strength to do it. Go ahead, try. Good luck with that. You see, this is not a matter of my determination, my willpower, the strength of my human effort. The truth is, for me to love that difficult person, I have got to get help. Unfortunately, we don't learn this lesson from the disciples in this story. (laughs) Ironically, we learn it from the Canaanite woman. As we saw, she comes to Jesus, she falls on her knees before him and she goes to the Lord and she speaks these two key words, most important words you can have in your life of faith. Help me. Help me. They're desperate words. They're words that kind of know you got a big problem that you can't solve. Help me. And I love this. I mean, you talk about boldness. She even tosses Jesus' words back at him. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You know, she goes from that street view of dogs to the rich people view of dogs, you know. Yeah, the dogs hang around the perimeter there and the whole family's feasting and eating and there's food left over and the dogs get it, Jesus. They get the crumbs. Even the dogs get the crumbs. I'll tell you, it's as if she's saying, Jesus, I know if you want to, you can do something about my daughter who is demon-possessed, about my daughter's life who is crushed, it's ruined, it's devastated. Her normal is awful, Jesus. You can do something about that. Not because I deserve it. I'll give you that, I don't. And I may be a difficult person, but I know you can do something. And I trust that if you want to, you can, you will. And how does Jesus respond? He says, woman, you have great faith. The Greek word is megas, mega faith. He's saying, lady, you got mega faith. That's what he says to her. You got kingdom sized faith. And he's blown away. They're entire inside. And this is a Canaanite woman. This is not a Jewish woman. This is not somebody who's grown up hearing all the prophecies about Messiah, blah, 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 blah. But she's heard something about Jesus and she comes to Jesus, Lord, help me, she says. You know, this was a moment where when Jesus rebuffed her, I mean, she could have cowered and cowed and and run, you know? She's been rebuffed by a Jewish rabbi. What did you expect to happen, Canaanite woman? This guy's not going to talk to you, let alone help you. 
But instead, she takes up her courage and she comes to him and she makes the, the request, Lord, help me. And she had come to exactly the right person. You see, the point is this, you know, we don't, we can't love difficult people. We can't love anyone just in or by our own strength. We actually need to learn to love by faith. And the question is, do you trust God enough to ask for his help? Let's be honest. Oftentimes we don't. We just get frustrated with people who are difficult and we give up on them and we avoid them and we don't want anything to do with them and we write them off and we don't really say, Lord, help me. It's such a simple thing to do. And I would just challenge you to think about the difficult people in your life who God calls you to love. I would challenge you, pray the prayer, God, help me. Help me be more patient. God, help me see them the way that you see them. God, help me to get to know and to understand their story because maybe in their story, there's some explanation for why they're so difficult. God, help me initiate. Help me to have the hard conversation I need to have. Help me to love. Help me to do that with humility. Help me to forgive. Help me to do what feels right now, frankly, impossible for me to do. God, help me. <laughs> Be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. I wish he hadn't said that. What a challenge. You see, this thing of loving people as difficult and as dirty as it is, is not something we ever get to lay down. It's not something we get to forget about. Imagine the spiritual renewal that could happen in us individually and in this church as a whole if we were to begin to love not just the people that we like, but frankly, the people we don't like. What would that be? What would that look like to a, to a world that's watching? I mean, imagine the light, imagine the difference, imagine the contrast that would be evident in the world if the church loved the way Jesus loved. I think people would be shocked. I think they would wonder, my goodness, what kind of God do they serve? These people love their enemies for crying out loud. And here's the deal. History tells us that that was one of the things that turned the Roman Empire upside down, turned it on its ear as Christians loved their enemies. Now, this is big stuff. Uh, it's impossible stuff. It's stuff that we can only do if we cry out, Lord, help me. And that would be my challenge to us all this morning, to myself, that that be our prayer. And I'm you know, you may need to talk to someone to figure out specifically what that next step of loving looks like in a particular situation. Um, absolutely, you're going to need to ask for help. You're going to need God's help. But what a difference that would make in us individually, in us collectively as a church, in the world as the, as the world watches. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. So often in life, we are the difficult people. We are the challenging ones to love. We are the demanding, needy, self-centered, indulgent, and judgmental people that need to be loved. 
It's a very easy, God, for us to avoid looking at ourselves and just look at those that we might define as difficult or frustrating people that we want to avoid. God, help us. Help us receive this morning your amazing grace that can enable us to love the most difficult people in our lives, people in school, people at work, people here in church. God, free us from the compulsion to just be nice. Free us from never saying what needs to be said. Give us the courage to have and respect healthy boundaries, to know what we are responsible for and what we're not. God, help us love. May we be the kind of community that's known not just for liking the people we like, but for loving the people we don't. Help us do this, Jesus. Help us do this today and this week and this month. God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.